Welcome to Memphis Machine. A Muddy Pig production. I'm Jonathan Bass. And I'm Carl Casperson, and together we're looking to show off the creative sights and sounds of Memphis, Tennessee. Amen. In this episode, Chris Davis. Now, Chris wears many hats. He is a musician. I mean, we're trying to do more than just music. Have huh? we talked to anyone in the course of recording this podcast that only does one thing? No. No. We, we set out originally to do music, but actually we're looking to exploit as many artistic endeavors as we can, I think, yeah, with this. It's pretty incredible. That's the goal. I mean, That's the goal. I think, Chris, uh, you have to catch Papa Top West Coast Turnaround. Um, look out for those guys in the uh, Memphis Flyer and online Facebook. We'll put all those links up. But Chris, um, a gifted writer, uh, a, a critic, I think he's a fair critic, uh, you know, reading his reviews, I think he treats stuff uh, very well, uh, has some biting opinions, um, but then again, he probably wouldn't be worth speaking to if he didn't have... Uh, no, strong, it, strong opinions, right? That's what makes reading his work fun. <laughs> uh, I, I wanted to get Chris in there and and try and, and get an eagle's eye uh, view of his of, of the city and how he views Memphis, and it was was wonderful. I had a good time talking to Chris. This is my first time meeting him. Yes, and well, he's an actor too, and he's an, yeah, he's he's he does he does a lot. Um, I can say right off the top, go ahead and search for "Daddy Drinks Because You Cry." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> Great, great song, great, great song to sing to your kids at night. <laughs> okay. Speaking of uh, this podcast, this was brought to you by Snakebite Company, makers of the original Snakebite bottle opener, which I have glossed over in the few other uh, podcasts. We need to talk about our little. It puts two little bites right behind the tab. Right. The ventilation. Ventilation. Oh, yes, on the uh, opposite of the tab of a beer can or soda. Doesn't have to be beer. But beer. And it keeps the, the beer from slapping or sloshing around. And they also make the Mamba. And the Mamba, a, a, the a, a fantastic bar tool. Bar tool. If you're slinging, uh, 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 if you're working and slinging a product in the bar, you should check out the Mamba t- bar tool. Um, Snakebite loves making products and apparel for the happy hours, after hours, and weekends when it's your time to relax and just be yourself. Check them out at snakebiteco.com. That's snakebiteco.com. And on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at snakebiteco. Speaking of being yourself, get inspired with Redwire. They are the experts in audio, visual design, and installation in the Mid-South. Redwire Audio Video specializes in the design, installation, rental, and support of high-quality and affordable custom audio, video, lighting, broadcast, and control systems for worship facilities and large public venues. Reach out to Redwire at www.redwireav.com. And of course, we cannot continue on without mentioning Ernestine and Hazel's. God bless Ernestine and Hazel's. Uh, the most quirkiest actually it's it's an award winning notorious infamous all of those things all of those things haunted and beloved and beloved um, we've been playing there together for three years Jonathan's been playing there even longer than that seven I think every Sunday seven. pretty much every come, Sunday. On, come on down and see the jazz trio we'll, we'll say hi and you can get yourself a soul, soul burger well, see it's it's uh, it's August and we're upstairs at Ernestine Hazel's. Memphis Machine back at Ernestine Hazel's. And it Hazel's. is not 74 degrees in here. Mm, no. But that's okay because the vibe, the vibe shall abide. <laughs> <laughs> the vibe will carry us through. Chris Davis is our guest today. Say hi, Chris. Hi, Chris. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't know it was going to go that way, did you? Chris Davis is a... Uh, what are you? You you you. How long have you been in Memphis? It's been a I, while, right? 
came to Memphis to uh, to go to school. That's my beer. I'm going to slam that thing down to if Rhodes I want College to. In, uh, yes. Well, one more time. I, I was rude there for a sure. moment. Go ahead. <laughs> I came to Memphis in 1985 to go to college. Yeah. Um, I was a Rhodes kid. Uh, did four years there, summers away. Uh, just kind of got the city stuck on my shoe. I tried to get away a bunch, and I would start missing everything that was wrong with it. And I would have to get back. It just felt like my people were here. That's lovely. Stuck on my shoe. I like that. So where'd you, where'd you move from to go to school? Uh, I was born in Detroit, and then... Uh, before I'm theoretically supposed to be able to form any memories, but it's not true. I have lots of memories of Detroit, but we moved to Middle Tennessee. That was where I was uh, was raised, a little town called Erin, mm. uh, founded by Irish railroad workers, they say. The most Irish small town in the USA. They say, I don't know. That's cool. Really? The, the that that which I is know. not naturally green has been painted green. Uh <laughs> Everything is the Fighting Irish, and they have like a big Irish Day celebration every year. They call it Irish Day because it's mostly Protestant, so they don't call it St. Patrick's Day, but they <laughs> they do let the local priests lead the parade. That's, awesome. that's like a later concession. <laughs> I think that's, you know, it's a progressive little town. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so coming up through Rhodes as a young man, uh, you, gra- you graduated, I take it, right? As a, as a what? As a young man, you graduated from Rhodes. I did, I did graduate, yeah. They, and, uh, they and, gave me a piece of paper. And, and now you are... Um, well, what did you study at yeah. Rhodes? Uh, you know, the, um, the course of study I took was weird uh, because they, the department, um, they fused two subjects together. They're actually about to, to do this again. Um, the theater department for many years has been a standalone department, and now it's about to become the theater and music department. Um, when I was there, it was a, a fused department, but it was fused with the media department, which may have been the most perfect thing in the world for me and nobody else in the universe, um, because it let me take a lot of uh, um, media theory and criticism, a lot of film history, um, a lot of things like that, but also take a lot of um, a lot of practical theater classes in uh, stage direction, acting, and a lot of things like that. So I, I came out of school really screwed up and not knowing what I wanted to do. Maybe <laughs> I wanted to be an actor. Maybe I wanted to be a director. I'd interned at Channel 3 News as a, a co-producer for the early morning show um, my last couple years in college and had really already figured out that maybe t- I didn't want to do that, um, which was, you know, that was sort of the thing I thought I wanted to do until I started doing it. So there was just a lot of time... Um, knocking around, getting jobs as an actor, jobs as a director, making jobs as an actor, making jobs as a director, waiting a lot of tables. Um, uh, I worked as a a prep cook for a long time for a Karen Carrier when she used to have automatic slims and another roadside attraction before Bar DKDC and before the beauty shop. Oh, cool. Uh, I made ravioli, um, you know, lots of stuff like that. Uh, And... um, helped start a Shakespeare festival. I mean, it was just all over the place, doing a lot of theater as a director, as an actor, as a producer. And I got tired. I had this great revelation. And the revelation was that um, maybe I didn't want to do this theater thing professionally. Or at least I didn't want to do it the way it kind of works. Because, <laughs> you know, you, um, I'm not really a song and dance man. I, I like to, uh, to do... Um, you know, the dramas and the comedies and the classics, you know, not so much the musicals. And that's where all the work is. Right. And you kind of have to work with what's available. 
And so maybe there's one show you sign on for on a contract of, you know, four or five shows and the rest of the things you're not all that interested in. And, you know, right. maybe one's the Christmas show and it was written by the director and, and the audience doesn't like it and they throw pennies at you. <laughs> you know, I mean, things like that really happen. And you could go, you know, like this show's the greatest show that's ever happened in the very next show in the very same place with the very same audience. Yeah. You know, it's, it's so Charlotte and my wife and I, we were doing a lot of work together. She was... Um, you know, also a performer, but she had the added benefit of being a really fantastic designer. Right. So was always able to pick up um, design work, and we did a lot of work together. And after working some gigs together, that just you know showed us that we liked doing the kind of theater we liked to do. We didn't like didn't just necessarily do it for the sake of doing it. You know, just acting mm -hmm. for the sake of acting or or designing for the sake of designing. We wanted to have some control over our destinies, whatever that means. So we came back to Memphis, and I went back to working in restaurants, and she went back to designing and, and project managing. And I, I just eventually backed into a job at um, Contemporary Media. Uh, started out as uh, their marketing department when the entire marketing department was on maternity leave. Um, worked for a while as receptionist, sold classified advertising, and kept whispering in people's ears that I could write. No, oh, yeah. So... That was like a really long-winded answer to your question because it's a good question. People don't know what I am because I do all sorts of things and have done like, right. you know, I've done weird jobs for, um, you know, making viral commercials for the Ford Motor Company. Uh, I mean, it's just, you know, it's, it's difficult. But my main gig for a long time has been working with contemporary media, which does Memphis Magazine, the Memphis Flyer, uh, Inside Memphis Business, uh, Memphis Parent, um, other specialty magazines and books. Um, and working for them as a, a writer and, you know, I guess the thing about having been a jack-of-all-trades, having to do everything from, you know, uh, um, screen printing and um, advertising and waiting tables and cooking is I'm sort of their jack-of-all-trades. I write about everything. Yeah. Mostly theater and the performing arts. That's, that's kind of the, you know, that's my baseline. But... Um, but it might be investigative reporting, it might be feature writing, it might be disaster coverage, it might be... So, so I guess these days I describe myself as a, a, a writer with a few creative hobbies left. Right. Yeah. Can I stop talking now? No, that, 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 that's outstanding. I, <laughs> I love usually it. interview I love people, so I don't, know, I don't always know how to be on this side of the... the um, You're doing the great. Yeah? You're, do, you're doing fabulous. Okay, it's we really should ask good. questions. Because... <laughs> I feel like the longer I talk, the further I'm going off a cliff. You, you, so what you, about fly on the wall? Yes. Fly on the wall. You know, yes. God, I'm actually, I'm sad about this week's fly on the wall. This week's fly on the wall feels very phoned in. For, for people who, who aren't aware, catch, us up to, catch everyone up to fly on the so, wall. So um, fly on the wall, I didn't start fly on the wall. I was, I was there at its birth. Uh, a dear friend of mine, and in fact, the best man at my wedding, Jim Hannis, was... Um, uh, a fellow uh, traveler with me at uh, Contemporary Media. Uh, you know, we both sold classified ads together while we were whispering in people's ears saying, hey, you know, let us write a music review. Let us write a something. And eventually people listened and liked our, liked our work together. Well, he was the first to get the call to go over and work full-time in editorial. And they were doing a big redesign on the paper and they were just looking around for crazy ideas. And everyone, like all of us, I, I was even brought in on the meeting to sort of brainstorm and talk about stuff. And we were big fans of things like Spy Magazine mm -hmm. and, you know, just, just stuff like that, that that had, that worked, 
that trucked in facts but presented them almost like monologue jokes or, or something like that. So Jim starts it, and the idea was to often, you know, um, do real media coverage or cover, um, you know, odds and ends in news that were real news, but to treat it cheekily and with an attitude and often a punchline. And, and he started it out, and he handed it off to uh, Mark Jordan, who drums in my band, uh, Pop yeah. West Coast Turnaround, who was also a little bit ahead of me in seniority. And Mark carried the torch for a short period of time. And then I took it over and have kind of grown it into the mess that it is today, which is both, uh, I finally took it online. Um, I, I describe when people ask what it is. I say it was a blog before anyone knew what a blog was because it just it was catch-all. It was personality-driven. It um, you know it um, it just collected things that wouldn't necessarily fit anywhere else. And so uh, I don't know if that describes it or not. But I've been doing it for a lot of years. And on when we took it online, we decided to expand the concept even a little bit further. To where it sometimes um, isn't just you know jokey funny things. Sometimes it's like, hey, this is a cool thing you should know about, or um, you know, this is just very this is a very Memphis thing, or you know, just just um, we even do um, um, onion style parodies from time right. to time. We looked around at like what other things that were really kind of successful that people liked on the net that sort of fit with fly on the walls mission past mission and if it fit we said well we'll try a little bit of that yeah nice. that being said my, my favorite is definitely the uh, john daly golden ratio <laughs> isn't that good <laughs> fibonacci 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 yeah oh, you know and and the you know gold, john the golden mean yes. john daly has shown up a lot in fly on the wall because you know <laughs> he just does stuff you know he's just one of those characters who and it's always like when you're not expecting it like just when you think john daly's done you know, something <laughs> something goes down, you know, and and you'll be like going, oh, I don't have anything at all for fly on the wall this week, and I'll just like randomly Google, I wonder what John Daly's up to, and and you know something like you find people have been like turning pictures of him into Renaissance paintings, and you're like, oh look, here's John Daly as a Renaissance painting with a nude, and and you know that's a real paint. I mean that's a that's an actual shot. That's that's a picture. Um, oh, that's a, of course it's a picture. What else would it be? But I mean it's an actual photograph from a. From a golfing yeah, I, event. This, th and there's true. the other one. You know, there's the other John Daly that I used recently. That oh, um, where yeah, where like there are all the um, the pictures of President Trump, Trump that have been right. doctored, and he's golfing, and they put uh, Trump's head on John Daly's body. And you know, I don't know what they're really <laughs> achieving there because I think like if it had actually been a picture of Trump, it wouldn't look that different. And and what's even sadder is the picture of John Daly. He's like he's swinging a golf club and smoking a cigarette. <laughs> so I mean, it's really you're just defacing this kind of weird badass picture of John Daly. By putting the president's I, face over the top I, of it, that just triggered a memory. I attended a uh, an old money wedding in Birmingham, Alabama, when I was in my twenties, and it does, was, it, does it, it still spend? It was a week. <laughs> does it still what? How old is the money? I'm just trying because <laughs> well, that Confederate that, that, shit. That, they always said it was going to come back, but it won't buy how, you anything. That's how it was. Just, you know, to a Southern California kid, that's how it was described to me. So, but it, it was a week long uh, stay. And uh, all these families hosted dinners and, and lunches and outings before the wedding on Saturday. It was this week-long event. And one of the large homes we visited, as you walked into the foyer, had a large painting of George Wallace reclining in the nude in a Greco-Roman thing eating oh my grapes. God. And, and, and I looked up, <laughs> nice. and it, of course, being, you know, being from Southern California, I had no idea who George Wallace was. And, 
and and the the madam of the house was very proud of that painting. Yes. I can only imagine. I would have been very proud of <laughs> of that painting. I, I'm a sucker for stuff like that. Like, um, so when eBay was new, uh, I once woke up one morning really saying, "Oh my God! I hope I just lost that bid because the last thing <laughs> I had done before I had gone to bed the night before this was like drinking and bidding was a thing <laughs> back then. And I think I bid like. $500 that I didn't have on a black velvet painting of Richard Nixon and thank God somebody <laughs> yes. was drunker than, than I was um, I've had to tell Becky I accidentally bought a pink P-Base <laughs> and I, unfortunately yeah, I was able to sell it to a friend pretty quick I'm no great Richard Nixon fan as you might suspect but something <laughs> about looking at it I thought it would look really good on my wall next to my black velvet Willie Nelson and my black velvet Madonna and my black velvet Jesus and my black velvet I mean I've got all the black velvet and I thought wow Nixon and the nice thing is my black velvet Madonna actually looks like Selma Hayek so it's like a twofer <laughs> have you seen the one on the other side of this wall um, you know I haven't been on the other side of that wall since they used to have like a big uh, p- like like a poker table that looked like a ship's wheel in oh, there oh gosh so, it's the, the, the velvet Elvis on the other side of this wall we're in Nate's bar right now up in Ernestine Hazel's upstairs looks like it looks like Eric Estrada Elvis, it, 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 it's it's that's the, those are the the <laughs> best ones. Like, um, you know, it's probably you know a sacrilege, but the thing I like the best about my about my Jesus picture is that he's just as sock-eyed as he can be. <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like one eye is normal and one eye like kind of bugs out of the side of his head. <laughs> like there was like, well, he he needed to like make some mud and, and heal himself a little bit because it's a bad <laughs> bad painting. And and it's not and this is original. It's not like some old lady said that needs restoration. It didn't get messed up that way. This was it's it's beautiful. Oh. And my Willie Nelson, I should I should point out, in some ways is like the least. Um, whoever painted Willie Nelson was maybe not a gifted painter, but it doesn't have anything that you look at and go, "Oh, that's just insane." Can, can you send us some pics before we publish see, this? Do you want to see some pictures would, of my would, black velvet? Could, I would like to just, put just it take in your the show phone. Sure. Just take your phone and snap some pics. That I, would that would be. I'll do it. Stellar. You know, we, we keep all of the black velvet in the bathroom, and <laughs> and Elvis is like our patron saint of the John, <laughs> because so many saints like they become the saints uh, because of how they died in some way, the yeah. saint of this or the saint of that. So so we have lots of Elvis, and there I have autographed pictures of Congri, and oh, these are the, these are the things you look at when you um, sit on the throne. Okay, so let me. I know Jonathan's got some awesome notes. I'm kind of winging it here. You but give me way too much credit. At the top of our discussion, you mentioned that Memphis stuck to your shoe. I love that. That's a nice poetic, visceral uh, uh, phrase there. I, yeah, like it, if, somebody chewed some gum and spit it on the sidewalk. So, so, so what, is, <laughs> what is it about the Memphis arts, creative, political, just the, the Memphis scene? that how, how would you describe to someone who's just popping in here brand new, what is Memphis? You know, Memphis just felt like a place that was dynamic. Like, a lot of places, like, Memphis isn't new, you know? It's not a new city. It's an old city with a lot of history and, like, some huge world-changing history. Right. You know, and we always think of it in terms of music, but also in terms of, of business. And, and all of these other things, uh, um, we are a pop culture capital of the world. And I don't know that I've really fully understood that when I arrived. But by the time I graduated from college, I did know. And I, and I knew it. I realized it uh, while I was working at 
as a tour guide at Graceland back when oh, they man. had Graceland, back when they had actual tour guides. And that was a job I took as a, thinking it was going to be a joke. I was producing the co- I was working as a producer. It was an intern. It was an internship level job, but I was co-producing um, the morning show for Channel Three, and it was like from four in the morning till nine in the morning or something like that. <laughs> um, and so I would get off at nine. And, and my classes uh, that year were just on Tuesdays and Thursdays. They were all day long, but just Tuesdays and Thursdays. So um, I, I went to the Channel 3 job every day, and then Monday, Wednesday, and Fridays, I took this job as a tour guide at Graceland. And they were just really figuring it out. And it was the first time I started seeing the way other people see Memphis, people who aren't Memphians, people who like came from Eastern Bloc countries and had sold their last cow to spend two weeks in Whitehaven. And, you know, <laughs> that, that's like a snarky, jokey way of saying something that's really true. Right. Um, you know, uh, um, just British fans who didn't really seem too touched in the head who'd come back and um, propose to the same tour guide every year because they wanted to be a little... Um, closer to the king and then lots of people who are just normal and then celebrity just all these people and they just keep coming and they keep coming and you think at some point that's going to be the last tour bus and and it's not and the people who think they are him and want to like play pool on his table or or do all of that you know they're the crazies too but most (laughs) most of it it's just people and and they're not necessarily just Elvis fans you know it was remarkable when we finally got stacks when they rebuilt stacks and did all of these other things you know um, this was a you know, there are places on the planet that, for whatever reason, acquire a kind of, um, you know, not... I think you start getting into really dangerous territory when you start talking about sacredness, but specialness. Um, places that people feel like they need to get... Some, the idea, you know, it's funny that Elvis, we think of him as being so kitschy. Because yeah. the whole idea of kitsch begins with um, being able to travel easily, like when trains start making it possible for people who might have never gotten far past their neighborhood to suddenly go to the beach, and now they're able to bring back a shell and hear the ocean in the shell, or bring back a little thing full of sand and put it on the table and show it to their friends. Well, well, you know, that also happened in the medieval times when, like, you would have pilgrims who would travel to holy places and gather little pieces of the oh, cross. Yeah. Well, music fans are the same way, and Elvis fans are even different than most music fans because it's not necessarily just the music that spoke to them but the um god i've been doing elvis week stuff this week right. by the time this airs it's going to be irrelevant you asked me one question and i've gone i, I totally told you i was going to do this when i was pretending to be a population uh, a po- population a politician <laughs> answer the questions i wanted to, to yes, answer yes um so I, i'm not going to talk about elvis now what what got me here uh, we, we can talk about all that later but there really was this moment working there that I saw the city differently. And I wasn't a fan at the time. And mm-hmm. I wouldn't even really say that, that other than like having just tremendous respect for the, the man and his music and what he did. I'm not a huge Elvis fan now. I mean, not like... Not to the degree that if I lived anywhere else, I'd know that I would be a person that would make that pilgrimage. Right. Um, although when people come here, I'm like, yeah, go do that. But that was, that was the thing that first made me go, crap, okay? So then you have moments where you're like going to see a band like, I don't know, the Bum Notes or 
somebody you may have never heard of because they just existed in the 80s and 90s. One of these bands that was playing at the Overton Park Shell, which was not the Levitt Shell then, and it was not fine and fancy with big lights and, and a fantastic PA system. Well, it had a pretty good PA system, but it, it literally looked like it could crumble at, <laughs> at any moment, and it was being kept... Um, propped up by a bunch of hippies who were dedicated to keeping it alive. A bunch of dirty hippie preservationists <laughs> won't let us tear down anything for progress. <laughs> I mean, r- really, these guys, just everybody, they, you know, why, why can't we have progress in Memphis? Why can't we tear that crap down? Um, well, so you would go there for like maybe Earth Day. And you sit down and you're like watching these bands and they're good. And then, like, somebody comes and says, can I sit down beside you? And you're like, yeah, sure. And it's, it's like Rufus Thomas, ah. you know? And, and, and he's, like, just sitting there taking it in with you. And then later on, you get to see him perform. And, and, and you know, you find yourself, you know, standing in line and, and at Walgreens to get your film developed. Remember when you used to go get your film oh, developed? Oh, gosh. Yeah. And, and, like, there's a guy in front of you, and he's got a little African hat on, and you start talking to him. And it's Ernest Withers, you know, the great civil rights photographer. And then you realize, you know, I, I was working at Squash Blossom Market, and um, um, every day Alex Chilton would come in to get his beans and rice and steamed vegetables, and everyone would just like, oh, my God, it's Alex Chilton. And I didn't know who Alex Chilton was. I mean, I kind of knew who the box tops were at the time. I mean, I got it. I got educated real fast. But... Um, I was always kind of a little bit jerky to him, and, I, and he, and <laughs> for whatever reason, actually, Big star. He, he was, you know, he wound up. Um, you know, I wouldn't exactly say we were ever friends or had a relationship, but it was an opportunity. We would sit together and converse in bars, almost about anything other than music. You know, after that, because we'd gotten to know each other in this one context, and it wasn't until like really considerably later that I started realizing that this access to these people and this culture in this place was you know not like anywhere else uh in anywhere else i'd ever been you know on one hand it was it was an old city and full of all these stars and people who had well you know stars and, and not and legends and people who'd really contributed to culture and they were just there and they were accessible and if you know and if you didn't just fawn all over them they might talk to you in a bar and <laughs> yeah, and um, and I and and even though it had all of this, it also seemed kind of jumbled and and disconnected and not fully formed. You know, you go to a place like San Francisco or New York or you know uh, Chicago, and those places seem like you know they're just kind of you know they're there's a way that things happen. This place, dialed in, like yeah. yeah. You know, I mean, so much of Memphis had was bombed out back then. You know, downtown was empty. Mm-hmm. And, and, and especially, you know, after five o'clock, there was nothing doing down here practically. There were a couple of places. You know, Automatic Slims eventually opens up, and, and there was a place over on the river, river, over on the river. River? Over on the river. <laughs> My mouth is so dry from biking down here on the yellow water. <laughs> um, well, there, there were just, you know, there, there were a few places, but it, just not like it is now. So it felt like a place that was forming, where, you know, on one hand, you could be connected to all of this history and on the other hand um, you know you felt like you could also maybe become a part of it in ways that it it didn't seem accessible in these other places I I should also point out like I think everybody has a lot of luck and happenstance um, in their lives and um, I made a really good friend in college who later became a a roommate um, like a summertime uh, roommate when we were all um, shacking up in uh, cheap college rented apartments 
Um, her name was Augusta Palmer, and her dad was um, Robert Palmer, who was the New York Times' first official pop music writer. Wow. And, and, and you know, they're all from this area, and he played with the... Um, um, he'd been with the Insect Trust. He'd also played with a local group here called The Scam. And he was, you know, he was, you know, back relocated here. So through them, I got an opportunity to meet just a whole lot of musicians and also got this real unexpected education mm -hmm. that I wasn't looking for. I was open to it as a music fan and had always been a music fan, but, but had maybe not known where to look. Well, all of a sudden... I had all these people, I couldn't have a conversation with them about the weather or um, a dog walking down the street or just whatever. Just everything always turned to, uh, turned to music. Yeah. Um, and, and these weren't just people who were fans or had knowledge. They were often people who had uh, participated in some ways. You know, it, it, um, one of the biggest supporters of the Tennessee Shakespeare Festival when we were doing the Tennessee Shakespeare Festival was um, Lee Baker from Mudboy and the Neutrons. And um, one of the big uh, fundraisers that we had for that um, now defunct organization, may it, you know, may it forever rest in peace, was a, a very nice three years of my life. We used to perform in the Old Tennessee Brewery when it was gutted out. Wow. And we did, um, we did a big fundraiser in the interior of there where all the stairs used to be that went all the way up, all the way up. And um, we had painted the back wall white like a movie screen and... Um, Professor Elixir Southern Troubadours, who were this big train wreck, a glorious train wreck of a band that played like a fusion of bluegrass and jug band. Uh, I never, I always called them kind of garage jug grass. I never, I never knew what wow. to, to call them. <laughs> That's terrific. Um, yeah. yeah. But they, they played, and then um, Mudboy and the Neutrons were the, the featured act and, and um, films of. Uh, uh, like old Errol Flynn dogfight movies and D.W. Griffith's Intolerance was like projected over them playing. Just, you know, one of those magic nights. Sybil Shepherd used to live down here and she came like to complain about the music and then saw what was nice. going on. I was like, oh, can I come in in my pajamas and my stuff? You know, Memphis was just a place where you couldn't, you didn't know if you were going to like, you know, bump into Joe Strummer on a, a deserted South Main corner from mm -hmm. back when they were doing Mystery Train. You didn't know. It just seemed like a place where anything could happen and it was, I don't know, it was just, as a, as a young man, it became very magic to me. It was, mm. it was very fascinating to me. I couldn't get a good job to save my life. Um, it was just always, uh, uh, you know, just on the verge of a complete financial ruin right. and never being able to get back up again, but I couldn't get it out of my system. Um, and uh, speaking and, yeah. of Sybil, Sybil Shepherd, the um, the Jack Robinson, uh, Jack Robinson Gallery, Gallery, yeah, yeah I I no idea. I, I I just played a couple of gigs, you know. I photographed everybody. Private gigs, stunning. Just yeah, in his story, uh, uh, I guess he was uh, Mississippi, and then uh, went to New York, and all of a sudden got in to all the right crowds. Warren Beatty and. Uh, the whole underground New York scene, right? Rolling Stone, all of it in the seventies, uh, up up until eighties. And then right? came back, and yeah, came and back. He got sick, or when he came back yeah. to help his parents. There's a biography there, uh, and, and pretty much all of a sudden, photography was just kind of like he got into stained glass. Well, you know, I mean, it's stunning. Yeah. And, and 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 then you know, died in ninety seven after he got sick, and then. <coughs> but yeah, if you're coming to Memphis, you, uh, 
you got to check out the Jack Robinson. It's just stunning. It's really cool. And what you're just describing about going to New York and getting involved in all of that, you know, back then, downtown was alive and it was happening, but it was also empty. You know, mm-hmm. it was a lot like what I was describing. I was saying, you know, I mean, it was still Manhattan, so it wasn't a lot like downtown Memphis. But, you know, when we think of that New York scene that was happening in the 70s, it was only a few hundred people, really. It wasn't like, you know, Manhattan, the way we right. uh, think of it now. So if you went and were a part of that world, you could become a part of that world. And so many of the so many of those people I was talking about, you know, all the, um, like, like um, the Palmer, Bob Palmer, yeah. like uh, um, um, Randall Lyons, who appears like all over uh, Robert Gordon's It Came From Memphis and in uh, William Eggleston's uh, um, uh, film uh, um, Stranded in Canton. Uh, you see a lot of Randall Lyons in that. He, I think he and Sam Shepard were roommates for a while. I mean, you know, they, they will always talk about, you know, the being uh, in New York for that time. And I always understood that the, the Memphis guys may have been a little bit weird for the New Yorkers that... Uh, it always nice. seemed like just when they were getting pretty far out there, we could match right. them. Uh, Jimmy Crosswaite, you know, did uh, dream circuses, and uh, I, I'm off track now. You probably no, have. It's, sorry, hit it, John. Nothing. It's just it's funny you're you're talking about having that that sense that that Memphis was forming in the, yeah. in the time well, you were talking about. It was I actually, both formed I, and forming. I still get that sense. I, I say still. I'm not really qualified to say still but i mean i i get that sense you know like like there is something forming here and you're not the first person i've i've heard say yeah know, well that. it's it's a stutter and you know i think that it was that you know what happens is you get all this good momentum going in one direction and then something happens there's a big economic collapse or you know something shuts down the money that was going here or going mm-hmm. there so you know we've had a few of those since this time I was talking about. So I think there have been like several times. And, um, but then again, I guess cities are always, you know, some have like a constant identity, but others are constantly reshaping. Yeah, I guess that's where I'm coming from. You know, like you, you mentioned yeah, figuring out what yeah, they are. Yeah, exactly. There, there are some that are constant. And then, uh, okay, so th- this is maybe getting kind of theoretical and philosophical, but, but I think you're, you're qualified to, to have this question <laughs> thrown at. So, well, so, so, so politics, The answer right? is fart. <laughs> <laughs> so, so uh, right, you know, uh, the, the political machine of Memphis, the, the uh, civil rights machine, the, the arts, how, how all this converges. What, what is it that you wish? Uh, what needs to change and do you see it happening? <laughs> No, man, because, because, because what, what, no, what you described earlier was like it was just magical, just lovely. You know, this this kind of uh, while working at, at Graceland, you had this awareness happen of like you know this this thing of people coming to Memphis and and actually letting you know that Memphis is unique, that Memphis is not just. You know, I don't know that I always knew that I was a writer or that I was going to be a writer. I always had this sense that I might do that someday. I think the idea. It's I, I'm I'm coming around to answer your question. I'm not going to go off. Did, I'm, did, I'm not did, going in a totally form, different direction. Did I form a question? I feel like I trailed you, off. I, I, so think you, I think you. I think you. I think you okay. got there. Yeah. All right. So I started realizing that I I started understanding things best when I was able to see how other people saw them. Right. Um. You know. Um. When I was able to have my own bubbles of what I believed. Uh, to be burst in some way by um, exposure to really 
often seeing paradoxes between how other people, between how different people saw things, like, you know, going and having heard people talk about, you know, Memphis sucks this, Memphis sucks that, and then going to Graceland and, and, and seeing these people that just, they couldn't, they, they didn't want to go home. Mm. Um, and, you know, maybe for reasons that aren't rational, but, but you know, not always. And, and you know, I certainly had, um, had fallen in love with the town. Now, now I'm off topic. Okay. So I'm going to give you a roundabout answer to that question. When I moved to Uptown, which used to be called Greenlaw when I moved there, which is just north of downtown Memphis. It's the oldest streetcar suburb in the city, and it was um, very down at heel at the time. When I moved to Memphis, uh, or when I moved into downtown and started living in the South Main area in a um, uh, kind of also down at heel part of uh, what was then down at heel, it's now very nice, on South Front where they store all the old used cars, um, that was a uh, living uh, orders then. I lived up in the front of that. And people would say, you're an urban pioneer. You're an urban pioneer. Urban pioneer. And, I, and at the time, I was like, I'm an urban pioneer. I didn't know what that meant. I really didn't know what that meant. I'm like Daniel Boone in Skechers. Um, <laughs> so, but at the time, nobody else lived down here, really. I mean, it was like us and some hobos. And I mean, seriously, Civil Shepherd lived around the corner <laughs> behind a wall. You know, there were people that lived behind a wall down here, but everybody else that lived down here, it was just like, you know, it was empty and the empty fields, people just dumped equipment there that was full of rust. And so when people said that, I got it. I was like, oh, I'm an urban pioneer. Well, then I moved to Greenlaw and people kept saying it, even though Greenlaw was very settled, it was full of people. And, and there was more life in one square block of, of Greenlaw than any place I'd ever lived in the 901. And people kept saying, this is my friend Chris. He lives in Greenlaw. He's an urban pioneer. And I, and I was like, I can't be a pioneer in a place that's settled. And it occurred to me that, that these people who were saying that, who were all really good people, who like were big-hearted people and open-minded people, often people with very um, liberal values, these were people that they couldn't see. These people were invisible to them. This was a culture that was invisible to them because they were very poor people. They are literally the invisible people that if you don't live in that neighborhood, there's no reason for you to go there because mm -hmm. there's no business there. There's no industry there. The uh, major thoroughfares don't drive you through there. The interstate takes you over there. It was very uh, disinvested at this point. Um, and so you start realizing that you know, even we talk about flyover country in the big sense, but there's a micro, there's a macro and a micro to flyover country, and that exists in your cities too. And there are all these neighborhoods that are very settled and very full of people, and they're very good people, and they're very family oriented people. But if you watch the TV news at night, you would think that outside of Germantown and outside of uh, Midtown and outside of the sort of um, you know, trendy areas where there's a lot of activity, it's nothing but a bunch of, um, you know, it's the, the wild, wild west, or it's empty, or it's, or there's a word you hear a lot that's blight. And there are a lot mm. of reasons for blight, and those reasons almost never have anything to do with the people. Once you start learning the history of zoning, and the history of who could and couldn't get bank loans, Ugh. and all of these things, you start realizing that the, the reasons for blight aren't the reasons we've all been told. And so, when you talk about solving the political problems, I would say the first thing that needs to happen is that a lot of people need to get beyond 
their perspectives and really have their illusions uh, broken as to what they believe or what they think about the place that they live in and the, um, the people that they live with. And there's a real idea and there's a real thing and it's hard for people to talk about and the technical term is fragility. And it means that when we start talking about these things, like if I start talking about, you know, um, you know, the disinvestment in these, uh, about how, um, you know, uh, it's not the poor people that lived in these areas that are responsible for it falling down. It's, uh. you know, whatever. Well, instead of like having that conversation, if we get defensive and we're like, well, well, I give to whatever charity and I, I judge people on a person by person basis. I'm this defensiveness. These uh -huh. are our points of fragility. And it's where we stop listening and we stop exploring because we somehow believe we are being blamed for a thing. And, and you want to know the only thing at this point in time that we really need to blame people for is that. Mm. is not like by going, okay, you have a perspective that's very different from what I've experienced. And we really need to hear it and we really need to listen to it. And we need to stop being fragile and defensive and, and have very open conversations between you know, people who are white, people who are black, people who are rich, people who are poor, people who are disenfranchised in a lot of different ways. And to understand that you know, uh, in, in America, we've had a very bad idea that... Um, being poor is some kind of moral failing. Oh, that, yeah. that if you haven't succeeded, this is some reflection of who you are as a moral person. We, that, equ we equate success with, um, you know, with that, virtue. That's also uh, considered a spiritual fail failure uh, by many denominations It's well. It's really yeah. frustrating because, you know, I, I just really, I feel like, I feel like Memphis opened my eyes to a lot of things, to good music, to good people, but also um, a good way of listening and understanding. And really, uh, Memphis opened me up to understanding that um, that um, there's no substitute for um, experience. That you know, mm. I, I may have read a lot, I may know a lot, I may think I'm a smart guy with a big heart and an open mind and have right. all the answers. But if I just start applying that in some kind of vacuum, um, I'm actually going to screw more stuff up trying to do all the right things. Yeah. Um, so I, I don't know if that really answers your question, but I think we have to, I think that real dialogues have to begin. And, and that begins with really wanting to. And I think historically, a lot of people just haven't wanted to have these uh, these conversations. They haven't wanted to, um, you know, get beyond their defensiveness and say, "Hey, not my yeah. fault, man." And um, as long as as long as that's our attitude, yeah, it, it is. I'm beautiful. sorry. Yeah, that was beautifully put. I want to ask you what. Okay, let me back this up. Coming, born, being born and raised in Southern California. That, that's you an, said that a few times. That's an entire yeah. So you, right? so you I still experience culture too, right? shock. I mean, yeah. yeah. Moving to St. Louis. What were you trying to say, Carl? Well, well, moving to St. Louis was, was interesting, <laughs> and 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 I I had thought I had moved to the Bible Belt, moving from Southern California to St. Louis. Negative. Yes, that is, yeah, major negatory. No, moving to Memphis, I I was very naive and thinking, well, this is pretty much like St. Louis. And and my, someone had asked me, so what do you think of Memphis? I've been here about a year, and and my my go to joke was. It needs a ton more Roman Catholics to kind of balance out <laughs> the, the, pro 
the Protestant is. The, 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 the did Southern I tell you? I was, did I tell you I was from a, a town that celebrates that calls the St. Patrick's Day Irish Day because yeah. it's that Protestant. <laughs> so, I, I understand. So, I understand. So, 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 They just, you know, it was dry. It was dry until really? two years ago. They, they just got a liquor store, <laughs> and I, I regret that I've not been to the Irish Day celebration since the first oh. liquor store in Aaron. And the other wee bit of Ireland and Tennessee had no liquor store. So, 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 what's your take on 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 the spiritual climate of, of Memphis? Like, how how does that inform and shape things? And I, I'm such a um, you're trying to gain listeners. All right, well, uh, no, I, no, we we can be. I'm, you I, know, I, I'm kidding. I, 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 in the city with more churches and gas stations, it may be the right? conversation you want to have. And you know, a lot of cities make that claim, and probably a lot of cities do. I don't know. I just said it out loud, and I hate when I like repeat cliches that I don't know if they're actually true or not. But we got a lot of damn churches. Sure, I probably shouldn't say damn churches. <laughs> <laughs> you got a lot. Of- <laughs> All right. Uh, but but I'm actually such a, a, a complete heathen. I sometimes feel uh, un. Uh, I, I feel like I'm not in a place where I can uh, properly assess that. Well, but but if if but look, we've only hung out a, a little bit. Our, our wives have hung out far more. Yeah. But in, in getting in, in, in because we're lone wolves. Right, okay. All right. So so I would say. So would you consider yourself uh, agnostic? Atheist or, or something, you know, like it's, it's hard to put a label. I, I don't. Still, I don't. I don't. I don't have a okay, word. But, I'm, I'm not a thing. But 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 you. But you. Here, here's here's what I think. I think um, I think that uh, there is a bad idea that used to circulate out there about. Um, um, if this life is the only thing uh, there is, then nothing really matters. And I was sort oh, of a, like, if this, if this is life is the only thing there is, then what we do is the only thing that matters. That's sort of my my um, way of expressing my spirituality. Okay. It's like, how, how about the word transcendence? Because I mean, because of arts, because of things that 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 click yeah. and make your soul. You're, yeah. You're, 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 so, 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 there's a systematized tr- transcendence, maybe by the the religious machine, the the dominant religious machine of this of this area, so to speak. But, but, but as human beings, because of arts, because there are the arts, like we're just not, we're, we go beyond just sleeping, eating, sex machines. Like we have this. Capacity. Sometimes we like to dance. Yes. Right. So, but that's so, just you know. So, yeah. so, so, so I'm saying. So, so I just love. I mean. I, Everything you've said so far has been golden, I think. Anyway, so so your perspective of like this 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 thing that is Memphis, this this large someone as what I was trying to get to the point of my story that someone said, "Oh no, you have arrived at the Bible Belt buckle in this area," which which was I, I was naive and kind of I was kind of blindsided. I'm heartbroken that there's not going to be a, a Memphis Music and Heritage Festival on Mid America Mall this year. It just absolutely cracks my heart in two. I, I'm not completely surprised that it's not happening, but I'm I'm nevertheless sad because that's been a place where I've seen some amazing things. Mm. But one of the most beautiful things I saw ever was uh, when my twins were, um, I don't know, maybe four or five. They were beyond being toddlers, but they were maybe not in school yet or had just started kindergarten. And we as a family and and by that point they knew that they were being raised different because yeah I guess they must have been at least in kindergarten or first grade because they had already had um, brushes with people who assumed that if you didn't you know if you weren't churchy that must mean you're you know um, worshipping Satan and of course I'm like I'm like tell them yes I'm like say yes and like I would um, 
like give them like evil sounding things to say and and be bad because you know I just sort of feel like you should you should fight <laughs> ignorance with uh, like by preying on it um, that's not true I'm, I'm now I'm being mean. well actually it is true I did tell them like to say all sorts of horrible things fight ignorance by saying ignorant things is but, that- but yeah but they 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 knew better they were like dad that's just going to get us in bigger trouble so so they they didn't do um any of that but you know they were um aware that they were um different than most people in a city that's that's very very religious um and that we were watching gospel music and um there were these great um there were quartets and just different groups and it was just great uh, memphis uh, uh southern uh, black gospel and yeah. it was just deep and rich and beautiful and um, and Malou who is somehow t- took to heathenism faster than anyone I've ever seen and is you know you know today you know is is you know she's at the head of the class yay <laughs> Lou um, she uh, well Lou uh, Lou's hands raise up in the air and Lou like just you know comes out of the seat and starts just dancing around in um, you know in this very in this way that you see all the time in churches when you know people get happy or or catch the Holy Ghost or however you want to, to right. say it it's not as completely out of body as that it's somewhere between that and like a good garage rock show right right and, and you know that's you know that's for me the the thing that's great because um like i tell like i always told the kids that you know i may not buy into the metaphysics but there is something really beautiful about the idea of transcendence Uh and um and it's and also about the way we come together a lot of times through music and through song in these uh, transcendent moments or through other kinds of art in these transcendent moments which are often you know which can be one part pedantic learning experience and another part completely out of body um experience wordless um um, you catch a lesson without the you know language defining it too much for you. Um, so I don't know if that answered your question or not, but I, I I do think that you know for all the all the strife and frustration that can exist as different ways of believing come into contact with each other. Um, there is a beautiful thing about it and it's a thing that you don't actually have to uh, buy into the metaphysics of it to Mm -hmm. experience or participate in okay Um, so I guess I'm a leech um, you know because I actually I mean I I tell people that that's part of you know what I feel is an empowering thing Mm -hmm. about Memphis have I think probably since the first time I saw maybe uh, Olanda Draper's choir um, really, you saw man, yeah. I, oh yeah, yeah. Wow. When he was still, when he was when still, he was still alive. Yeah, I mean, when I had arrived in St. Louis in the early '90s, I hooked up with a black gospel choir uh, from Washington University, and he had just hit the scene. We did his arrangement of uh, the Gaithers. He touched me. Oh yeah, yeah. Oh my goodness. You know, I won't be able to call any of the players' names right, but um, my friend Shelby Bryant, who used to play in a great um, kind of garage new wave 
band uh, called The Clears back in the 90s, and then went on to do some solo projects like um, a thing called Cloud Wow Music. Really just a, a, an eccentric and wonderful soul. Um, would often invite me to different uh, churches around town to hear you know, just different keyboard players. Oh, wow. Um, you know, we'd go somewhere off Elvis Presley and stop and get um, uh, fresh off the uh, assembly line Krispy Kreme donuts and then go listen to, you know, some, you know, maybe some organ player that um, Herbie Hancock was into. Or, oh, gosh. you know, because musicians listen to musicians. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's the other thing, is that I, I just feel like the, the depth of music knowledge, music love, audiophilia, all that stuff in Memphis is, you know, people are fans in other places. And in Memphis, it's, it's different. If, if you start saying you know a little something about music, people will call you on it. And, it, and, if, and if you don't, um, oh, they'll, no. they'll let you know really fast. Right. I very briefly was the music editor at the Memphis Flyer. It was never supposed to be a permanent thing. It was, you know, I, like I said, I've done everything for a minute over there. Uh-huh. And um, there was a time uh, when they had hired Chris Harrington to take the job, but he wasn't going to be able to start. Mark Jordan had left, Chris Harrington was starting, and I was filling in the gap. And I was putting together a bunch of stuff, working on a tight deadline, doing all my regular stuff, and putting together the music stuff. And I... Oh, oh my goodness, what was it? It was um, Billy Lee, um, Billy Lee Riley. I was writing about Billy Lee Riley and just typing out his name, I typed out Billy C. Riley. I guess I was thinking like Jeannie C. Riley, the, the country singer who did Harper Valley PTA. <laughs> oh, wow. I somehow like fused those names in my brain. Well, you could write stories about people starving in the street about the Russians coming to take over. You could write all these stories about terrible things happening and people just ignore it, not say a peep. You get Billy Lee Riley's name wrong and you people will call and say they want to punch you in the nose. Huh. I mean, people just take it really seriously here. And, and while it can be a, pain, a real pain when you're like the guy who just got it wrong, if you are not somebody that's defensive and like listen to Memphis, Memphis will teach you. Mm. Um, um, it's just... You know, it's just this vast repository. And, you know, increasingly we're losing a lot of the people who you can say it can teach you from people who you can say, you know, these were life lessons learned. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, so many of the folks who came through. I mean, there was a time when, you know, you, like I said, you'd be standing in line at Walgreens and talking to somebody and they go, oh, yeah, you know, I was on such and such and such and such at Stacks. And you're thinking, no, you weren't. And, and, and of course they were. <laughs> Um, because so many people at different times did this or did that, you know, just, you know, it's just a city where it's, it's also connected and it's so connected to greatness. And I feel like I'm rambling again. No, that's good. No, 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 no. We're we're just, I'm just asking you to testify, uh, uh, to, to, to that, which is, is unique of, of, of what is Memphis. Jonathan, you have something? He's getting up. He's got a, should we take a break? Let's take a break. All right. Well, hey, we're, we're back. We're tracking now. Okay. Just want to let you know in case you say something. We were talking about C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis. <laughs> Ursula K. Le Guin. Look at that. At Ursula K. Le Guin. Hey, t- two things I want. I know we just took a short break. We went downstairs. We're back up at Nate's Bar up in uh, uh, Ernestine Hazel's. Big, big shout out to Ernestine Hazel's again. And thank you for letting us thank you so much. use your facilities. Okay, Memphis Theater. So, um, David Foster. 
What about David Foster? Uh, Rest his soul. Right? Yeah. So Memphis Theater is a unique gem. I know St. Louis has a a tightly held beloved theater scene as well. Memphis reminds me of the you know, the people that have a tenacious love and defend and, and continue to support and, and further the theater scene. Yeah. Um, I, I, yeah, so being still, I, you know, I've been here six years, but I, I, I'd never seen... Hey, well, we're downtown at Ernestine Nasals. That was some real live honking so, going so, on. So my, my first exposure to, to David Foster was uh, uh, Peter and the Star Catchers. Oh, right, right. And he... D- um, Delights just... Uh, um, Captain Blackstash. Good gosh. <laughs> and, 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 and I remember seeing... I'm like, who is that? <clears throat> and, yeah. and, then, and then getting to see him, uh, Priscilla... Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. Desert. Just... And, phenomenal, you know, just phenomenal. He dude. could turn around, and he didn't do it often enough. You had to practically drag him, it seemed, to get him to do uh, uh, dramatic performances, non-musical performances. But when he would do that, he was every bit as adept uh, as doing musical performances. I guess we should probably like go ahead and, and um, say that uh, he's a performer who passed away uh, very recently after a. Uh, about with cancer because right. we're, we're talking about him in the past tense without right. establishing that and that can be weird sometimes right. uh, and, and he and you know this has been a year where Memphis has lost a bunch of really um, beloved um, figures and you know, David wasn't really the, the um, you know even the first in this set of terrible dominoes that have fallen a, a man you know I, I'm not even going to be able to list them all right now off the top of my head but but David my first encounter with him, I was doing a production of Sam Shepard's A Lie of the Mind at uh, Theater Memphis and was playing um, Jake, you know, one of his um, kind of hyper-masculine, overly violent, um, you know, just characters, um, and who is, who is in for a, um, a change. Mm-hmm. And the director, Kevin Jones, had... Um, this this play is always associated with music. It was originally performed um, with um, um, a bluegrass uh, live with a, a bluegrass band, and I'm completely uh, the Red Clay Ramblers. Oh wow! The Red Clay Ramblers. I, it was taking me a minute to remember who it was. Uh, I knew it was actually kind of a big deal band. They played live when it uh, originally debuted in New York, and uh, this director heard it differently. He heard it with gospel songs. And uh, he got David Foster and Carla McDonald, uh, who's also a big uh, local musical theater performer here, to stand in the catwalks and sing, uh, sing gospel music uh, to underscore the scenes and to take us in and out of, of, um, of different scenes. And this was my first encounter with David. And the two of them made such beautiful sounds together in the rafters of Theater Memphis. It never occurred to me that they might do anything other than sing or even sing together. It was really just, wow. I mean, you know, probably a cliche to say heavenly, but it just, it just was. And so it was uh, um, just a joy to like discover that he could, <laughs> he could do so much more and was really just, just one of those people when you thought you knew the range of his talents, he would turn around and surprise you. And, and I think you're right in describing uh, Memphis as a, a unique theater town. You know, a lot of places have more theater. A lot of places have more professional theaters. But I'm not... But this place um, manages to do uh, an incredible amount of really, I, I think, pretty high-level um, work. And some of that is because we have access to facilities that a lot of places have. I mean, I, I think mm-hmm. that... 
you know, the you, a lot of great stuff happens in Nashville, but they, they don't have anywhere near the um, number of facilities that, that we have for okay. people to do things. You know, when um, Playhouse on the Square was, uh, the original theater works was down here on South Main. I don't know if you know that or not. No, it was no. South Main and Hewling, where the Village Art Gallery is, or I'm sorry, the Art Village Gallery is now, Ephraim's, uh, where he started um, an art gallery. That was the original theater works building. And then they built a new one in Overton Square. And then uh, that was created specifically uh, to have a place where uh, n- uh, new emerging artists could, um, you know, fail without breaking the bank. You know, <laughs> they, could, they could like rent a place that would have some decent lighting, you know, some infrastructure. Back then it wasn't that much. But now the new, the new facility has is, is got some pretty nice things in it. And all of these little independent companies that might normally have to rent shop fronts or perform in living rooms with no technical facilities, no technical amenities, or you know rent whatever they had, you know whatever they had budget for, mm-hmm. they're able to rent you know theater works or rent um, Evergreen, or you know and so or maybe even some of them are resident companies that are in these places and perform there all the time. So um, so you get like a lot of um, of little companies that over time start producing uh, very finished work. And you also have a lot of companies that work very lean with very little that also do very good work. Um, I, I don't know if this is, you, you know, the, the theater community also I think is, is um, um, it's very loyal. And, and when you start thinking of it, I guess it's pretty large, but I don't always know how much of an overlap there is between different communities, between, you know, the visual arts community and the Memphis music community okay. and the Memphis theater community. Right. So, um, so maybe there's like specific things you want to ask, because if you just let me ramble about, about theater. We should also mention that Chris writes a blog, Intermission Impossible. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Intermission Impossible. Um, and it's, it's news, it's reviews, it's me being cranky. Um, <laughs> it, it's just, you know, it's, uh, um, I, I, you know, I, I like to, uh, I like to know what's going on in the local theater community and let other right. people know. And yeah. I guess that's what blogs are. So how much acting do you get to do? You know, I don't do uh, a whole lot, um, anymore. <clears throat> like I said, I, I kind of just had this, this change, um, where, what I thought was the thing that was for me, it just didn't feel like um, like it was right anymore. Every now and then I'll go back and I'll do a little something. Um, I guess maybe the last thing I acted in was a, um, a really uh, acclaimed and award-winning um, anniversary production of uh, The Robber Bridegroom at uh, Rhodes College. It was so full of so many good, good people and a good director and... Um, it was just a joy to go back to the womb, to the theater I came out of and help them celebrate the 30th anniversary of the McCoy Theater with that show. Um, but it was, you know, it, it almost takes something of that magnitude to get me back under the lights. I'm more likely to direct. I went away, uh, it's been a, actually been a couple of years because when you work as a, um, you know, I'm a full-time, I, I am blessed to be employed as a full-time writer. Right. Not many people get to say that anymore with, you know, those opportunities shrinking. So uh, to make theater takes time and it's a real commitment. And Oh, yeah. 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 Um, so it's just really hard to do it a lot. And I, I went uh, to Middle Tennessee and directed a, 
uh, a production of Shakespeare's Measure for Measure that I just really had a blast doing. It's one of those things, like, when you're doing it, you're like, oh, my God. I should do this all the time. I forgot, you know, how much, you know, how, you know, it's like duck to water. This is exciting. And then you finish it and it closes and everybody hugs necks and the actors go back to New York or wherever their next job is and, and you go home and you're still riding high and, and then you get back and, and you're back at the job and, and, you know, and you just acclimate to it. And that, uh, um, and I also love what I do here. So it's not like I'm sitting there the whole time going, why am I not? directing why right. am I not and and the other thing is is that the whatever thrill I used to get from performing on stage I'm able to supplant that a little bit just by doing a band and it's it's you know um, just me and my buddies who were more or less a drinking uh, club <laughs> with a little country music problem uh, <laughs> Papa Tops Papa Tops West, West Coast, Coast Turnaround right. yeah yeah let's talk about that hey welcome to Nate's hey we just had someone popping in that's cool so and, yeah now, now yeah, now this endeavor is, uh, I think that was the first time I actually met you, was be, was through your band. Yeah, it was. It was. And you gave me a CD, and it's in my car. <laughs> and I was listening to, <laughs> I just forward, I found it on YouTube, the, uh, Dad, we can all, Daddy Drinks with. Because You Cry. This is, that, that's, uh, <laughs> and anyone who's raised children. It's my free bird. <laughs> Okay, but no, but tell us, tell us about Papa, t- t- tell us about the Papa Tops. Uh, well, it's, um, you know, it's old school throwback honky-tonk music, um, guitars, pedal steels. Um, baritone and, guitar? Sometimes. So, oh, I love the baritone yeah. work. In that. Yeah. Uh, John Whittemore, who plays steel, also usually brings his baritone guitar. That's a great It comes sound. out um, on most of the trucking songs and, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the stuff where you want a little extra, a little mm. extra thump down there. Um, I love it. And, you know, it's just a, a, a bunch of um, old punks and garage rockers sometime back in the mid-90s all realized we were sort of secret fans of old-time country music. Um, John Stivers, who uh, played uh, guitar, or plays guitar, they actually have a new record coming out for uh, Impala, local surf they're described as a surf band. It's sort of like how I said uh, Professor Elixir was hard to describe because they, they weren't bluegrass, but they weren't not. They weren't a jug band, but they weren't not. Impala isn't really a surf band, but they're the best surf band you've ever heard. Mm. But a lot of what they do might be better described as crime jazz um, wow. or, or drag strip music. Cri- or crime jazz. Crime. Well, you know, think about like all those old like 70s uh, detective TV shows like like uh, Barnaby Jones oh, and gosh, all those yeah. Quinn Martin productions or, or you know, the old oh, uh, man. The 67 Spider-Man soundtrack. I, or think about Henry Mancini's Experiment in Terror. Oh, gosh. Uh, they they, Just, they do this amazing Experiment in Terror that... Um, that George Clooney became a huge fan of. So when he did the movie about the gong show host, original gong show host, Chuck oh, Barrett, right, yeah. Barris, right. uh, Confessions, Confessions of a Dangerous, of a Dangerous Mind, Mind. Great movie. Uh, there's a scene in there where they use the entire version of Impala's Experiment in Terror. Wow, and it's, awesome. it's just perfect. Wow. So he and I were getting loaded at the PNH Cafe one night and basically just, you know, uh, whining. We weren't crying in our beers, but we were whining in our beers. About, <laughs> there's no good country music you can go listen to. And then... Um, Shortly after that, I was at the um, Mid-South Fair, and George Jones was playing a free concert at the Mid-South ah. Fair, and I bumped into John Whittemore, who I'd gone to college with, and he played in um, a punk band called Neighborhood Texture Jam, and you know, as long as I'd known John Whittemore, I had not really known, and he had also played uh, 
uh, he was playing a little pedal steel now and then with um, Professor Elixir. So like I said, were they a country band? Were they a bluegrass band? Were they a jug band? I don't know. It's a mystery. Mm. Um, but I knew he played pedal steel, and now here he is at a George Jones concert, and I started thinking, all right, there's a thing that's going to happen. So I just started calling people, and uh, next thing I knew, we were, uh, we were a country band, and it seemed at the time like we might just put on fake nudie suits once or twice and, and do some gag sets for our friends and... and um, and then we just kept getting gigs and people kept asking us to play in like 20 years or, you know, I don't even, I don't even know how many years later. We, we don't count. Yeah. Um, a couple of times a month. You know, we'd be a whole lot better if we'd ever practiced, but, uh, but a couple of times a month, like some bar wants us to play. And so we show up and we, we do some of our songs. We do a little smattering of a lot of stuff. Most, uh, most people might not even recognize this country music anymore because it just doesn't sound like okay. you know, it just doesn't sound like what you hear on the radio. You know, well, it's, it's all you know, George Jones, Buck Owens, Waylon Jennings. Yeah, but there, I mean, there, there's been a, there, there's country. been a resurgence of, of that, what you would call it, it, yeah. They, they well, called it alt country for a minute, right? Alternative I think country. Dale Watson, who now has a house in Memphis, calls it Ameripolitan. Ameripolitan. Wow. Ameripolitan, because he nice. wanted to, he realized that you know what what's now called country music doesn't sound anything like the country music that he grew up or that informed his sound. Right. So he thought there needed to be a different name for it. And it's, you know, it's, it maybe gets at it. Yeah. You know, honky tonk and you know, the politan in it, you're like, well, well, isn't country music country from the country? And, and honky tonk in particular is post-World War II music. It's, um, it's a city sound. It's like when all the soldiers came back from World War II, they, may have grown up on the farm but they went to the city looking for jobs and and opportunities and so it was this electric sound for the first time as they needed amps to play in noisy bars and and yeah. it you instead of really being about life on the farm maybe it's more about displacement and it, you there's a lot of loss well there's a lot of death in the old country music but there's a different kind of loss in honky tonk okay Answer this for me because I, I just started playing with Gary Hardy down on a uh, the Johnny Cash sure. tribute show that he does. Okay, on, on, at Alfred's on Beale Thursday nights. <laughs> uh, Six but, to nine. But you know, and, and I I have always been peripheral to 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 that that Americana, <clears throat> politan type music. Yeah, but what is up with everyone killing their girlfriends and fiancés in, in, in these songs? Like, the murder like, ballad? Yeah, yeah, oh my gosh. You know... What is up with that? It's a, it's a, it's a good question. And, you know, I, I think there's never a bad time to um, consider or reconsider the meaning of things. Mm -hmm. and, um, and so I think there's a lot of things that are going on in the murder ballad. And I think maybe we need to you know, think about it and question the, the value of them going forward. I, I love them, and I realize that it is maybe a problematic uh, love sometimes. But so let's, let's think about it through the lens of maybe, maybe one song. Um, well, well, first of all, I'll say that there's a lot of functions. I think, I think they can be everything from um, a, a warning, uh, you know, act right, uh, or you're going to get what's coming to you. I mean, I think that's like the, you know, I mean, I think there are ways that they sometimes like uh, um, carry some bad baggage of our culture along with them. Okay. If that makes sense. Sure. But I think at some 
level, they also maybe function like horror movies. Like they're all maybe also part of the mating ritual. Let's take, tell stories that make us very scared and then we'll jump in each other's arms. Um, I, think that there's, I think there's some of that going on. Um, but also a lot of it's just like people have... So Shakespeare's got this line in The Tempest where um, all these clown characters who've been shipwrecked um, come across Caliban who's part man and part fish and they're trying to figure out what he is and they just know that they're going to take him back with them on the ship because they're going to get rich and the line is um, you know where people will not pay out uh, a shilling to relieve a lame beggar or will not give a droit to relieve a lame beggar they'll give 10 to see a dead Indian or something like that there's this there's this uh, um, fascination with things that are sensational or okay. fantastic. The same way we talk about in modern media, if it bleeds, it leads. If it bleeds, it leads. Right. Well, this isn't newly true. This was true 100 years ago. This was true you know, 300 years ago. And like, probably one of the most notorious ones is Knoxville Girl. Uh, do you know the song Knoxville yeah. Girl? Yeah. Um, uh, the Leuven Brothers probably have the most iconic version of it. Um, I knew a little girl in Knoxville, a town we all know well, and every Sunday evening out in her home I dwell. Um, it, it goes on. It's, it's the brutal. story. It's the story of a of a man who invites his girlfriend out on uh, an evening walk, and as they um, walk along, he picks a stick up off the ground and uh, starts hitting her in the head with it. Gosh. And, um, yeah. Yeah, she fell down on her bended knee for mercy. She didn't cry. She said, Billy, dear, don't kill me here. I'm unprepared to die. Um, she never spoke, an, or I can't remember. She never spoke another word. I only beat her more until the blood around her with her blood did flow. I mean, it's, it, it, I took her by her golden curls and drug her round and round. I threw her in the river that Ugh. flows through Knoxville town. It's brutal. And a lot of people have said it's made even more brutal by the fact that it's hard to like, figure out exactly what his motivations are. That's not true. A good close reading of that, of that song, every piece of the puzzle is there. And the more you start picking it apart and realizing what's happening in that story, the more the more brutal it, it becomes. R rather than like understanding, making it like, oh, well, that's much better now. No, it's, it's actually way worse. Wow. So that song was a hit for the Leuven Brothers in the 50s. <laughs> that song was originally recorded, and, and I'm, I'm terrible with dates, but I think uh, originally recorded. It was not recorded. <laughs> there was no recording instruments. The, the original version of that song was maybe called The Bloody Miller, or something like that. It was like it was like in the 1600s, or, or maybe even earlier than the 1600s. And it was it was like the bloody Miller, the bloody this other thing. It then became like um, Alfred, like Bick, Bickford Girl or Shropshire Girl. It, it had other names, maybe even Oxford Girl. It was all these different names before it finally made the hop across the pond, lived in Appalachian folk balladry. Um, it, it's very well documented. It, it, um, you can like trace the history of Knoxville Girl, and it's fascinating. Wow! And so what you have is like this oral tradition through song of a story that was like you know every community has either urban legends or even news stories about some famous murder. You know we talk about Charles Manson or we talk about oh. um, um, different serial killers. You know you can't turn on a History Channel without seeing like some show about you know. Um, or a Netflix original. Or Netflix original, you know, about some, you know, psychopathic killer. We're, we're just fascinated by this. And then again, the nightly news. It's all gunshots. It's all blood. It's all whatever. Well, so a long time ago, this Miller 
kills his girlfriend and it's really bloody and it's really sensational and everybody in the town talks about it and, and they keep talking about it and it's passed down the way we pass down the same kinds of stories only this gets turned into a song and um, and so it managed to you know, last from then until now just by people retelling it the same way we tell the stories the, the urban legends about the guy who goes uh, about the, the couple at Lover's Lane who, you know, find the hook stuck oh. in their, you know, stuck in their car door, drove away just before the hook killer, you know, got a hold of them. Um, you know, the difference being they actually have traced the provenance um, and, you know, this murder actually happened. Oh, gosh. Um, so, know, as a youth, I got into my dad's record collection, you know, and, and my first murder battle would have been uh, the Kingston Trio, uh, Tom Dooley, Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley. Tells the story of like, yeah, I killed my girl. Yeah, now he I'm, I'm, I'm going to go hang. I, I remember as a kid thinking like, like in contrast to uh, listening to Neil Diamond and Beach Boys, and uh, it was quite the contrast to like, well, what's this? And then uh, the '90s, Richard Marks, kind of like a soft murder ballad, uh, Hazard, his song about like he, he's accused of killing his girlfriend, but he says he didn't. But yeah, maybe, but maybe he did. But he says he did. I think there's a lot of soft and maybe not so soft misogyny in a lot of it. But then there's just a lot of we're attracted to fantastic and sensational stories like horror movies. Yeah. Like, like this, the movies, you know, like I said, this, the, um, the ghost stories we tell around campfires. You know, most, we don't make those stories up off the top of our heads. They're stories that, you know, somebody told us that we heard mm-hmm. somewhere else before and someone heard it before them. And most of them are nonsense. Um, but some of them are rooted in, you know, in real things. And I think that the, the broader attraction is that. But inside that broad attraction, there are maybe some really problematic elements. And, and you know, I, I understand that that's true. And yet one of my favorite songs to sing <laughs> is Johnny Paycheck's Pardon Me, I've Got Someone to Kill. The most, <laughs> the most polite of all murder ballads. Uh, by the time you tell the sheriff, it'll all be over. Uh, he'll find us in the big house on the hill. He'll find the note explaining why I killed us all. Pardon me. I've got someone to kill. Oh, wow. Yeah. Johnny Paycheck. Bless his heart. Really a great, uh, uh, an Bless underrated singer, mm. uh, Paycheck. Um, if you've never listened to the recordings he made on a label called Little Darlin', um, don't listen to like the the big label production stuff. Most of that stuff's overproduced. Well, some of it's good. I'm not, I'm not going to trash it all. But the little darling singles are something special. Wow. Yeah. So when's the next time? Uh, there's, there's my advert. There's a little plug for Johnny please, Paycheck. Please, yeah. But better but, known as Donnie Young, a hot-headed, uh, temperamental cuss who <laughs> dishonorably discharged from the army after punching his commanding officer in the face. That's partly true. I actually don't know the... I can't remember the exact story. When are you guys playing again? When, when's that coming up? Uh, well, this podcast will have gone away by then. I think uh-huh. we're playing uh, this coming weekend, the 11th. August the 11th is the next uh, show that we have. And then we got a bunch of stuff after that that, that tragically I never uh, uh, can keep it in my head and am pretty bad about <laughs> we'll, writing it down we'll in a calendar. To, we'll try to get it in the notes. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Um, so what, you... Go ahead. Sorry. No, I, it, yeah. So I, you just interviewed director Steve Bender or Binder? Sorry. I, I'm not you know, I think it's ben, Bender. Bender. Yep. Bender. And, uh, of course, Darlene Love. 
right? Do, do what? Darlene. Darlene Love, Love yeah. Right? Darlene Love, both of them. Um, For the, uh, what, the, the remake or the uh, revisit well, of the... This is the 50th anniversary of right, 50th, Elvis's yeah. 68 comeback TV special, which was not called the 68 comeback. <laughs> and, like, I honestly, <laughs> you know, it's like weird how many people don't know that. It was called, I love this name. This is such a big name. Such an important name. Singer, which was a sewing machine company, Singer presents Elvis. That was the, that was the name of the 68 comeback That's, special. Yeah. And Elvis hated, uh, um, Tom Parker wanted him to go on a tour after the TV special aired and he had come back in the title somehow and it just it made Elvis crazy because even though he had an awareness that his brand was maybe in danger because he'd been making real shit movies and had gotten <laughs> in such a bubble so far away from what was actually happening in contemporary music at the time he, he knew it and there was a, um, there was a lot of concern but okay I definitely yeah before we wrap up I'll, oh, I'm, I'm no, sorry yeah. no 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 before we wrap up part of your revelation of the uniqueness and beauty of Memphis came through you being a tour guide when there was actual before the cassette tape brothers or whoever was you yeah know. yeah in our in our podcast we have not really touched on the Elvis component for whatever I mean you know it's just but but from your view from your from your plateau El, Elvis and Memphis how, what's your take on it <laughs> well that's a big question I know I know but you know but like you know in, in our remaining moments here a child was born in Tupelo, Mississippi. <laughs> that child would grow up to be Elvis Presley. He would change the world. Or as Sam Phillips would say, he would flat-ass change the world. Uh, yeah, we flat-ass changed the world. That was a, a quote from <laughs> Sam Phillips to Jackson Baker in a, a cover story about Sam Phillips many moons ago. Um, you know, I don't know... I don't know um, I don't know how to answer that in a kind of macro way because there are just so many aspects of of him. Um, you know, I think I think it's really difficult for Memphis to understand exactly um, what he has meant to the city, and I think mm -hmm. we get tired of hearing it, and we don't maybe even always want to hear it. And for the longest time, we tried to erase. You know, we whether it was intentional or not, Memphis just didn't understand what it had, and and was not doing anything to um, gild the lily, as it as it were. You know, when when Graceland first opens in the mid '80s, and I'll get the date wrong, I came to Memphis in '85, and Graceland had only been open for a year. I didn't realize when I started working there because by the time I started working there in like '80. 788 um, maybe 88 89 it felt like it had been there forever it had already become a joke you know kind of a, a cliche that oh you've got if you're going out you got to go to Graceland Graceland's you know it's you know that's where you get your kitschy souvenirs um, so it didn't I didn't know it was so new um, let me think I don't know I don't know I'm uh, um, the music tourism in Memphis now is a multi-million, if not a multi-billion dollar prospect. When Graceland opened, Sun Studio was empty-ish. There, there, there may have been something going on in there, but it wasn't music tourism related. Right. Um, it wasn't music related. It wasn't, um, 
it wasn't torn down, but it wasn't it wasn't activated in any way. Um, I don't think they had yet torn down stacks, uh, but you know, so <laughs> so they opened Graceland. Graceland is pulling people in from all over the world, so naturally it's going to make sense to somebody, let's go tear down Stack Studio. <laughs> you know, there were people like <sighs> the same hippies that were preserving Overton, uh, you know, the Overton Park shell, the, the Levitt shell, um, who knew that, you know, you shouldn't tear down Stacks. Um, but, you know, progress, right? Right. So, um, so we've had to tear that down and rebuild it for people to really understand how valuable it was and what it meant to the world. Um, so Graceland really showed Memphis for whatever kind of good, bad, love-hate relationship we may have with Elvis Presley Enterprises. Because, you know, Graceland is here. Elvis Presley Enterprises is not necessarily okay. here. You right. know, ownership is maybe elsewhere. Values are maybe elsewhere in some cases. But, um, you know, whatever you may think about Graceland or your opinions about them trying to get the city to give them money or whatever, I think it's important that we always understand that Graceland showed Memphis that just how much people valued the culture that came from here. Um, it didn't show them soon enough. It didn't show them in time for them to not tear stacks down in the first place. <laughs> yeah. But, it, you know, its success is the foundation for uh, the Stax Museum for um, you know the the revived Sun Studio for the Memphis Music Hall of Fame for mm-hmm. us having a you know the only Smithsonian exhibit outside of Washington D.C. with the the Rock and Soul Museum. So it, while I feel like as a tour guide my experience was unique, I think that Graceland also showed the whole city exactly what I was seeing that there was this thing here that maybe we don't understand, and even if we don't understand it, we should pursue it. Well, you know, maybe Elvis is that too. He can be really polarizing. You know, the, the <laughs> I'll get really nerdy here, because you know, I'm, I'm really into rhetoric, and nobody ever says that. I'm so into rhetoric. <laughs> but you know, in rhetoric, you often use these models, like Shakespeare or something else to have conversations about other things. Uh-huh. You know, you're, you're able to get at other things through pursuing one conversation or another. And, and I think when you, I, I think at least at this point in the city's history, you can't really even talk about Memphis without thinking about Elvis and his impact on, um, on the city, on its economy. Um, and there are probably pros and cons in every direction. But right. um, as far as what's the Elvis Memphis thing, um, I don't know. We should, um, we should think about him critically more. And we should think about him, uh, his meaning in the city more. Um, I'm, yeah. I mean, a, embrace it. I mean, like, go ahead and take it in. Like, that, yeah, I hope that answered your question. Yeah, well, I mean, like. That, that sort of felt like I'm not sure what I'm saying. It, 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 no, in moving here, the, the urban legend I heard was the, the family initially, Priscilla and everyone was kind of like weirded out by all the adoration. There was a turning of the curb of, of, to where it's like, you know, this can, be, this can be actually very fortuitous. This can be actually a, a, a huge enterprise. We should not yeah. be so, we should not consider this so weird and maybe distasteful, but go ahead and embrace this thing and actually yeah, f- just take it all in. A thing that, you know, that 
that I discovered later, you know, as a journalist, really talking to people and the, the origins of, of Graceland is the thing it is now, is they didn't know. You know, they had no idea it was going to be what it is. Right. They thought they were going to open up. They would have some, you know, they'd be there for the fans. It would be, you know, they knew that people were going to want to see it. They didn't know that it was going to grow into the thing that it became. That shocked the people at Graceland as, as you know, as much as anything else. So, right. So, yeah. And, and I don't know, like, like distasteful. I don't know. I, I don't know what that even means, really. I, I heard an NPR, uh, this is years ago, uh, someone in charge of the branding and marketing licensing of Elvis. Right. And, and NPR did, did a, a great interview of the person in charge, like the, kind of like the gatekeeper of what is acceptable and what is not acceptable to license with Elvis's image. <laughs> and they asked, what were, some of the, what were some of the requests you turned down? And the person from Graceland said, we had a request for a, a, a sprinkler head, an Elvis sprinkler head that would pop out of the ground. And, and, sh- and I thought, I would buy that in a second. Like, to say, Why not? Why right? not? But still, I thought, you know, but like, but like you know, a, a, a testimony to, to the power of Elvis. So, yeah. So, so he creates this, this bigger than life, super heroic, over the top image like right at the very end of his life right. in the 70s when everything was you know a little bit overdone um and and it's funny you know after the 68 comeback the, the 68 comeback changed him i think in a lot of ways he, he had like working with the movies he would cut tracks with his rhythm section and they would bring in all of the musicians to overdub it he'd never really like sung live with an orchestra he didn't like you know not done a lot of this stuff and by the time you get to the um later concerts you know he's got um he's got his band he's got some symphony players he may have like a couple of gospel choirs and he's trying to fuse so many different kinds of american music into this you know um um if if phil Spector was creating a wall of sound right uh, um Elvis was trying to make a big old wall of sound. I mean, he was just trying to, to make this thing. And so we, we talk about, you know, to use the crass term, people sometimes talk about skinny Elvis and fat Elvis. And there was a big thing when the, the stamp came out, you know. Right, Is it going right. to be skinny Elvis or is it going to be fat Elvis? I remember that, yeah. Well, I don't like to think of fat Elvis in terms of, of his weight. But at one point, his, like, the sound and everything was so just just gargantuan and the look was gargantuan he was a big fan of captain marvel jr comic books he loved comic books so like all the capes and all of that that's all informed by you know superheroes which as the success of the movies show today are also this you know deeply ingrained thing in american culture but so you have this big bell-bottomed superhero with these enormous (laughs) buckles he creates this image that he can't outlive and so we kind of put him to bed at this moment, and, and it makes it sometimes, I think, maybe hard to see what's a very um, complicated and complex uh, story about a guy who really was just a, just a dude. Yeah. Uh, a guy who was just a dude with this phenomena in his throat and this ability to connect with a song. Right. Um, and you know we want to 
you want to pile all this myth on it and all this stuff. And, and you know, that's what we do. He though. just wanted to hang out with his friends and throw the football around. Um, right. So, so, so yeah. Um, was there a question? <laughs> I mean, as, as far as like, I mean, like, do, do you still cover like Elvis Week? Coming, like, are, are you are you still do you kind of keep your th- your your thumb on the pulse of, of what's going on with that? And- well, I I think you know, and partly by way of fly on the wall, that pop culture just falls under my purview. So like, um, the good, the bad, and the ridiculousness of Elvis, I try and you know keep mm-hmm. a little bit, but not just him. You know, all of our local celebrities, whether it's um, you know. Um, Jerry Lawler or Al Green or whatever, but but you know Elvis is the he's the big one, so he tends to show up way more often. And um, with Graceland really trying to up their game, and I think become much more of a year-round uh, um, thing that may even have appeal to Memphians and people in the region, uh, and not just tourists. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's a lot more stuff happening out at that guest house with concerts, like a recent concert by Marty Stewart. Right. Um, you know, opportunities to see some pretty great performers in a, a really nice and intimate um, environment. So, so you know, I cover um, a lot of that. Not from the business standpoint. Um, Toby Sells and some of our, our other people handle the development and all of that. But as far as the entertainment goes, yeah, I always want to know what's going on. I'm a, you know, I, I'm a sponge for all kinds of entertainment culture, whether it's, you know, music, um, theater, fire juggling. I, I, don't, I don't care. Cool. Um, <laughs> I like awesome. it all. Do, do, do you have anything else? No. I think we're, we're feeling the natural. Yeah. Okay, good. Uh, but, 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 but my last question that I've been asking a, a lot of our guys, oh, what are your hopes for Memphis? Mm. If, you were, if, you, if you were king of Memphis and you were able to like do some quick decisions and let's let's right now do this what or or just or just like you have aspirations you have hopes what what are your hopes for for Memphis my hopes are that we shrink down to a reasonable and right size for a non-sprawling city and rebuild all of our connective tissue so that people think in terms of walking biking mass yes. transit where all nice. that stuff's not loser cruisers but it's stuff to connect yourself actually with the things that are going on around you because when you get on the interstate or you know and just live in a bubble between your you know your gated area or just your your you know your whether it's actually gated or 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 um just gated in the way it's been developed uh-huh. you know when you start getting on a pedestrian level in the city, you get to know it like, like you never knew it before. Um, you see its people, you see things that are changing, you see new businesses that you didn't know were there before, you try out new businesses. And when communities aren't connected, people don't see that. You know, they, they just drive by all of, all of those things. And that's the thing that we lost was a lot of our connective tissue. You know, we would have these, quote, blighted places between places that were thriving. And we're seeing stuff like with Crosstown. You know, Crosstown was a big, a big linchpin. We're seeing stuff with like uh, the Hotel Chiska. You know, South Main was doing pretty well. The Central Business District was coming back. But in between those two areas, there was this big, empty Hotel Chiska. Well, just connecting those things means the world. Yeah. Uh, putting lights, they lit uh, underneath the interstate uh, where it passes over uh, Main Street. 
by Alcinias. Right. So at nighttime, mm -hmm. instead of it just being dark under that bridge and you come out of the convention center and you're like, well, I guess I can go south. If I go north, I'm going to get knocked in the head going under that bridge. Right. Well, you don't think that anymore. So now you come out and you might want to go to Westies. You might want to go. Little things like reconnect us. And I think that the thing that I hope most for Memphis is that we find ways to reconnect. And I think that once we reconnect physically, we reconnect in a whole lot of other ways. Wonderful. Yeah. Chris, thank you so much. This, is, this has been wonderful. Uh, we're we're going to link all your goodies. And um, thank you so much for hanging out with us. Today. Yeah. Sure, man. I, I, like I said, I wanted to do this a long time ago, and I'm just really awful about, like, you know, setting a date. But here we are. Yeah. I mean, ask Charlotte. It took us, like, 10, 15 years <laughs> to finally get married. So, so you know, I actually came around to saying yes to you way faster than, than that. Hope you enjoyed that time with Chris. We surely did. Uh, he's... He's a very smart guy, come to find out. We already knew that. I was super intimidated going into this. Because <laughs> we're just... I mean, <laughs> we're just we're just playing we're at just, being journalists. <laughs> Actually, I mean... Oh, my God. No. Uh, he's a for real journalist. Oh, although, like I said, a man of many hats, but he does them all well. Go hear the band. Uh, if you are in town, search out Papa Top. And read his blog. Read his blog, please. Yeah, yes. Mission Impossible. And even engage with him on Facebook if you're if you're brave enough to do that. <laughs> right. uh, but thanks again to Chris. Thank you again to Snakebite Company, Redwire Audiovisual, and of course our beloved Ernestine and Hazels. Where you can get the finest Soul Burger. That's you can't even say it, the finest because it's the only. It's actually the only Soul Burger. Soul Burger. All right. All right. Catch you the next time. Mm -hmm.